When we're talking about spiritual gifts today, if I can calm myself here. Spiritual gifts are a generic definition of God-given abilities to each person for the good of the whole church. These are not abilities that we have inherently. Now, last week we talked about the sign gifts. Those are the ones that are visible, that we see and experience personally and as a corporation, as a church. Very public setting. Today I want to look at the other gifts that we don't talk much about. Those are the gifts that are behind the scenes gifts that people have that allows the church to continue to mature and grow. Now, before we list those, I'm going to go through the context for the gifts that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, the reason that we have them. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 starts out and says, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up only one body. Now, he's talking about the church, using the body as an example of the church. It says, so it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. But we all have been baptized in the Christ body by one spirit, and we have all received the same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one. If the foot says, I am not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm only an ear and not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? Suppose the whole body were an eye, then how would you hear? Or if the whole body were just an ear, how could you smell anything? But God made our bodies with many parts, and he has put each part just where he wants it. What a strange thing a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some of the parts that seem weakest and least important are really the most necessary. And the parts we regard as, regard as less honorable are those we clothe with greatest care. So we carefully protect from the eyes of others those parts that should not be seen, while other parts do not require that special care. So God has put his body together in such a way that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among members so that all the members care for each other equally. If one part suffers, then all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all parts are glad. Now that is referring to the body of Christ, the local church. And he's using the analogy of the body to let us understand that every part in the church is necessary, just like every part of your body is necessary as well. So we're gonna look at the, the local church aspect because it also applies to the church in general. But we're gonna look at the, church, the local church aspect. And the main point of this passage is to declare that every believer is on equal footing with every other. Regardless of the gift that God happens to give you, the Bible says we're all, we're all equal. And how God uses each one is not as important as, as the fact that he does use every believer in some capacity. And every believer is necessary to the welfare and the growth and the maturity of the church as a whole. That means every, every nursery worker who changes diapers the cleaning staff, the deacons and preachers were all equal in God's eyes. All are necessary for God's church to work. If we didn't have a nursery, who would care for and teach the babies while mom and dad are able to worship without distraction? If we didn't have a kids program to teach and train the children on their level, our church would die in one generation. Every church would die in a generation if we weren't training the children. 
I said this on Wednesday and I've said it before that I believe that every church has within its own ranks everyone to complete what God wants to accomplish with every church. Whatever ministry God wants to do, whatever outreach he wants to accomplish, he can accomplish with everyone who's local. And doesn't mean we're going to be a megachurch. We're not going to have the programs that a megachurch has, but everything that God wants to accomplish with us as a church, there is enough people in here to do everything that God wants us to do. But that means everyone has to be involved. How many have heard the phrase, there are, there are no bench warmers in God's kingdom? Nobody's riding the pine in God's kingdom because everyone has something that God has called them to do. This brings me to the second list of gifts that's found in the Bible, the ones that we talk about not as much as the sign gifts. Romans 12, verse 6. Now, some of these are duplicates, but we're going to focus on the ones that aren't. Romans 12, verse 6 says, God has given each of us the ability to do certain things well. Notice it says, each one of us have the ability to do certain things. Not some of us, but all of us. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out when you have faith that God is speaking through you. If your gift is that of serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, do a good job of teaching. If your gift is to encourage others, do it. If you have money, share it generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. So we're going to look at each one of these and how each one is part of our church. Now the first one's prophecy, and we talked about that, verse 6. God has given us each the ability to do certain things well. If God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out. So we talked about this the past two weeks. We're not going to cover that one today. But we're going to go to the next one. It says serve. Verse 7 says, if your gift is that of serving others, serve them well. Now the word serve is the word diakonos. And how many remember that? Sound familiar? That's where we get our term deacon from. We get the term deacon from servant. This is the one the person who is one appointed under God's direction to lend practical assistance to the members of the church. Philippians 1.1 says, this letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. It is written to all of God's people in Philippi who believe in Christ Jesus and to the elders and the deacons. Romans 16.2 says, our sister Phoebe, a deacon in the church in Chentria, will be coming to you soon. Same word, deacon one who is called to serve others. And more specifically, we use this as our method of electing deacons in our church, Acts 6, verse 2. It says, so the 12 called together a meeting of all the believers. We apostles should spend our time preaching and teaching the word of God, not administering a food program. They said, now look around yourselves, brothers, and select seven men who are well-respected and full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will put them in charge of this business, then we can spend our time in prayer and preaching and teaching the word. Deacons in this context are meant to help the pastor so he can pray, study, and preach. They should also be able to lead other programs that are in any local church setting. Now, some pastors take this to mean that that's all they do is study and preach. That's not what it means. It means he has to prioritize and do what God has called them to do. How many know that most pastors do other things? Clean and fix commodes, scrub the carpet, all the things that are necessary. There's a, there's a leadership uh, principle that says, 
The things that only you can do, that you're, that you're supposed to do. You should do those things. Everything else comes second. In other words, if you're called to be a pitcher on a, on a baseball team, they're not going to have you collecting the bats between the innings. Anybody can do that. You're called to pitch. That is what your priority should be. Everything else should come after that. If collecting bats takes you away from pitching, then you're not using and you're not doing what God has called you to do. That's the same way with every occupation. If you're an electrician, you don't spend your time sweeping the floor. You get someone to do that for you. You're an electrician, you have a skill, that is what you spend your time on. The thing that you have the gifting and ability for. And so, it doesn't mean you don't eventually sweep the floor, but it just means you prioritize what you do. And, and I've been called this, and it's okay, a control freak. If you're a control freak, and you have to do everything, but you're shirking what you actually have to be doing, then you need to prioritize. If I spend all my time cleaning, and no time studying, then I'm shirking the one thing that God's asked me to do. And as, as a believer, there are things that God has called you and gifted you to do. That's what you should prioritize your ministry on, what you're gifted and ability to do. It's easy to get involved with everything else to the neglect of the one thing that God has called you and equipped you to do. Now, we have a great, a great deacon board here. How many appreciate those guys? You do a great job. You should be proud of the guys who serve on this board. They do a tremendous job and we appreciate them. They're called to serve and they are great servants. The next one is teach, Romans 12, seven. If you are a teacher, do a good job of teaching. This is the one with God-given ability to clarify, explain, and direct people in how to apply God's word in order to build up the church and help fulfill God's purposes. That is one of the main reasons for the local church. Matthew 28, 19 says, Therefore go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything, or to obey everything I've commanded you. Churches were meant to do three things. We're to share the gospel, let people know that Jesus loves them. The second thing we're supposed to do is we're supposed to gather together to worship God as a body. And the third thing we're supposed to do is teach to train those who are young in the faith so that they are able to understand and know what God's word says. Not because we say it, but because God's word teaches it. So we are called to teach, and that means every level. We are commanded by God to make converts. Or not make converts, right? Make disciples. How do we make people fully committed to God? How do we make them disciples? We're talking about on Wednesday night, how to, if you're a fan or a follower, a fan is a person who likes everything as long as it's going their way. A follower is one who's really committed. You are committed to, to following God. And how do we make someone a follower? By teaching them and letting them know what God's word says. Not what my opinion is, not what I think about something, but what does God's word actually say? And there's no age limit to whom we're supposed to teach. That's why Dana's downstairs with the kids. That's why I'm not downstairs with the kids. I'm not gifted in that area. You wouldn't want me down there for about a week. You say, oh, my kid's not staying with him any longer. 
We're commanded by God to teach from the youngest to the oldest. And if we don't do that, we abdicate the, one of the main things that God's called a church to do. And a God has equipped, as I said before, every church with people who are able to teach. Now, you may not think you're able to teach, and it may take practice to get in the groove, but God will give you that gift. If you feel that little nudge in your spirit, and it may require someone coming to you and asking you that. When I first taught my first adult class, I was scared to death. There were people in there who were Christians a lot longer than me. And I, and I shared this, the one class I taught for a couple of weeks, Tiff was in my class. The guy we watched on Wednesday night, who's, you know, super Christian. He's in my class, and I'm trying to teach him something. I'm laughing, I'm laughing, I'm not gonna teach you anything. But it was so scary, and I thought, I can't do this. But you know what, God got it better, got it better. And doesn't mean you're not challenged, and it's good because you wanna be challenged when you're teaching, make sure you're teaching right. But as you do it, you get better at it, and you now enjoy doing it. Paul says, woe to me if I preach not the gospel. There's not a lot of preachers I know who retire that quit everything because they got to be doing something. they got to be teaching. they got to be doing something. We moved to Florida, and I wasn't actively on staff anywhere, but the first thing I had to do, I sat in church for about a month. I said, okay, this is enough. i got to do something. So I went and I asked, can I teach? And I teach a class. And so they got me teaching again, but... Because it's something you just have to do. It's something that's in your spirit. You just can't just sit and listen. And you don't have to be a scholar or a theologian because certainly I'm not. But it doesn't mean you can't teach. It doesn't mean you can't be an influence on those you have in your class. And it may not even be the things that you, if you're doing with little kids or teenagers, it may not even be the lesson so much as the relationship you build with the kids in your class. And then they follow you because they like you. And they have a relationship with you. And so when you teach them things, they receive it more than if you just teach them and you don't care about them. My favorite classes in high school were, were Russian. <laughs> and I had a science class that I liked because why? I liked the teacher. Now, it didn't hurt that the teachers were female. And they were attractive. <laughs> But I liked the class, and I got A's in those classes because I liked the teacher. I can't speak three words of Russian now, but I remember the class. And when, you, when this, your students leave your class, you hope that they remember you. They may not remember what you taught them, per se, but they'll remember you, and they'll want to honor you with their life, and they'll learn from you because you have that relationship with them. And it requires you to be obedient to what you know in your heart God's calling you to do. Colossians 3, 16, these are a lot of scriptures for this. When I saw the, the song show, there's a, a list of scriptures, right? Colossians 3, 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, you have heard me teach many things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Teach these great truths to trustworthy people who are able to pass them on to others. Acts 15.35, Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch to assist many others who were teaching and preaching the word of the Lord there. Titus 1, but as for you, promote the kind of living that reflects right teaching. 
teach the older men to, receive, to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect and to live wisely. Titus 2.3, similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that is appropriate for someone serving the Lord. Titus 2.15, you must teach these things and encourage other people to do them, correcting them when necessary. You have the authority to do this, so don't let anyone look down on you or disregard what you say because you're young. So teaching is not an option. We're not, it's not an option for any church to do. Our job is to teach. And we should all want to teach and we should all want to share what we've learned to other people. We're doing a video series, and I've mentioned this on, on Sundays in, in the upper room with the kids. And it's, it's actually a course that's geared to college students. And I'm listening to this, this video series and it's, it's, you know, some of it's over my head. But what I want them to learn and understand is there are intellectual, smart scientists, educators who are Christian. That they, they've studied this, they know that there are scientific reasons for these, there's, there's discoverable things that they can learn through science and everything else that does support the biblical basis. Because they're not gonna learn that in school. That there is scientific evidence, there is hypothesis. These are things that have all been kind of accumulated together that there isn't sufficient evidence to believe that what the word says is true. They may not understand everything that's being taught, but I want them to understand that there are actually scientists and, and archeologists and people that are smart, that understand and they've studied this and they still come to the conclusion that God's word is true. And that's what we need to teach our young people as well as all of us adults. That it's not just because I'm saying it, and it isn't even because God's word says it, which is sufficient, but there is evidence in nature and science and archeology span and biology that prove that what this says is true. It's not just because we think it's true. There is objectable evidence to prove it is true, and we need to understand that. So when we are questioned, the Bible says, always be prepared to give an answer to those you ask of the hope you have within. Now, when people ask you why you're a Christian, are you able to articulate why you're a Christian? And can you do it without saying what well, the Bible says? Because not everyone believes the Bible. You can say what the Bible says and you can say that, but you can also back it up by, well, this research over here shows this, and this science over here shows that. You're able to articulate why you believe it. The Bible says don't be deceived by fine-sounding arguments, especially if you're in, in school and college, they're gonna present things to you that sound really good. They sound, man, they're scientific, they have a lot of this stuff behind them, but pushed to the edge to define them and to articulate them, they don't have an answer. We're talking about the, quote, Big Bang Theory up in there. Big Bang Theory is basically that there was a, begin there was a beginning. It was nothing at some point and then the Big Bang happened and all that. Well, the point of that is there, are, there were scientists that used to believe that the universe always existed. There was no beginning. Well, all of those hypotheses have been proven false over time, and they're still left with the Big Bang, but ultimately, and, the, and I didn't realize this until I heard it this morning, the Big Bang is not the cause. The Big Bang is the effect. In other words, who had the Big Bang? Who started the Big Bang? The, how did the Big Bang even start? The Big Bang is the effect that the universe was created because of the explosion, because of the Big Bang. 
But what caused the Big Bang? Who created the, the matter that caused the Big Bang? You know, so those are all things that as Christians we want to know this stuff so that when we are presented with arguments that sound good and sound scientific, that there, is, there are other scientific hypotheses that are out there. And so we want to teach that to help us. Now the next word is encourage. Romans 12 verse eight says, if your gift is to encourage, then do it. And it means to exhort or to comfort or to call near. And I think we all know folks who have this gift more than others. I would probably be not one as an encourager. My wife is a big encourager. This is one who motivates other Christians to deeper faith and dedication to Christ. A greater demonstration of godly character and a more complete separation from the ungodly practices of the world. How many have ever needed to be encouraged? You just need someone to call you and talk to you. You're having a bad day, you need someone to come in and lift you up. And there are people that have that gift of encouragement. That they can go in and they can just say the right thing at the right time to lift that, that person up. 1 Thessalonians 3, 2 says, we sent Timothy, who, are, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. Titus 2, 6, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. Acts 14, 21, they preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Acts 13, or 15, 32, Judas and Silas, who, presented them, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. Sometimes God will use you, and you may not even know it, to give a word of encouragement to somebody else. That you just call them to talk to them and they, they needed that conversation and you have the right words, the right demeanor to encourage them in their faith. Maybe they're wavering, maybe things are just happening to them that just, they just can't understand and you're able to call them and maybe give them a scripture or maybe pray with them. Just something to encourage them in their faith to really, when they're done talking to you, you know what they say? I needed that, I needed to be encouraged. And the one thing I try to do is I try to listen to sermons because I don't, you know, I don't get to receive. And there's a lot of times I'll hear something going, boy, I needed to hear that. I needed that encouragement from somebody else. Always be alert to situations like this where someone needs an encouraging word from you. You know, I, I, I'm big about getting together as a church, even when the, the virus was out there. We still got together. Why? Because there is, there is a, a dynamic in togetherness that you don't get online. And maybe it's something that you walk in and someone encourages you, not me, but somebody else. You're not gonna get that by yourself. You walk in the church and someone comes up and, and you say, you know what, I'm having a bad day. And that person's there to encourage you. That's why the Bible says we get, gather together to encourage one another. And, and it may not even be anything that's said from the front. But maybe it's something that you talk about over coffee and donuts downstairs. Or maybe it's something that happens between Sunday school and church. Or maybe, and this has happened, that you stand outside the doors during church 
and you're, you're ministering to someone outside the doors that they need to hear. They don't need to hear the sermon, but they need you out there to talk to them, to encourage them. That's why God says to get together. When you got together for dinner the other night, great time of encouragement. Just sit around and laughing and carrying on. It's a fun time. And everyone leaves encouraged. That's why we do the dinners. That's why we do the men's breakfast and the dinners, which, by the way, there's a breakfast or a dinner coming up. We're going to go and be carnivores at Mission Barbecue. So all you guys are welcome to come. We'd love to have a group of us. It's a, it's a time. It's not preaching. It's just fellowship. And you encourage others to lift them up to be there. Maybe they had a bad day, and you gather around something to eat, and you just chat, and you have a good time. You encourage the person by being there. The next one is giving, Romans 12, 8. If you have money, share it generously. And this is one with extraordinary ability to give freely of resources to meet the needs of God's people. I gotta tell you, for, for being the size of church we are, we have a very generous church. Percentage-wise, very generous church. We outgive many larger churches in BGMC, in missions, and it's because y'all have the gift of giving. And there's, there's individuals that have even expanded that gift, and they have provided things for us, you know, that we wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Acts 11.29 says, the disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now, in Macedonia, the, the Christians in Macedonia were very poor, destitute. But they raised money to send to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem because they were being persecuted. So this is the church that had nothing, but they gathered as much as they could and they sent it as a gift. And you'll find that in throughout Acts, you'll, talk, you'll hear this gift talked about in Acts a number of times. It's not the amount. It's the heart behind the amount. That you really have, a, you, want, you have the gift, you want to bless someone, so you, you do this for them. You do this for the church to help and things that we have. Hebrews 13, 16 says, and do not forget to do good and share with others. For with such God's, or such sacrifices, God is pleased. And how many know you, you can't outgive God? You can't. How many of you are going to lunch today from Father's Day? Nobody going to lunch? You're having lunch at home. You're going to lunch today. Yeah. Sweet. I've said this before. When you go to lunch, whether it's today or any other Sunday, be nice to your servers. Tip them well. They know that you're church people. Servers have said that they hate Sundays because church people are the worst. Stop being the worst. Tip them well. Be nice to them. Give to them. Romans 15, 26, for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. That's a gift again. You bless someone by giving to them under God's leading. God never lets you not make that up. Leadership, verse 8 says again, if you have 
If God has given you leadership abilities, take the responsibility seriously. This is the God-given desire, ability, and power to guide and oversee the various activities of the church for the spiritual benefit of all. God has appointed people to lead the church. God's given people the ability to do that. 1 Timothy 3.1 says, Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now that word is interchangeable with the words bishop, elder, overseer, pastor, shepherd. Same root word. King James uses the word bishop. New Living Translation uses the word elder. New American Standard uses overseer. And Ephesians, if you read that, that's the same word, pastor, shepherd. So when you hear any of these words, they mean they're interchangeable. They're the same thing. Elder refers to the person, while the term bishop and pastor refers to the office of that person. Elder and overseer eventually evolved into what we use today as, as the pastor. That's what, we're, that's what pastor we use today. So when you hear the word elder or overseer, they're talking about pastors. The term bishop evolved into one who oversees many churches, like Paul was an was a overseer of a lot of churches, like a district office type of thing. The next level of leadership is 1 Timothy 3.8, deacons. Likewise are men worthy, to be, worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. The first group is designed in, to oversee and shepherd the flock. It's a visible role, pastors, elders. Those are the people that are visible. Deacons, according to Bible terms, are the ones who do the behind-the-scenes work. And one commentary says it this way. While the elders, or pastors or bishops, focus on preaching the word, rebuking, reproving, exhorting, the deacons are appointed to take care of everything else, such as administrative tasks, ushering, volunteering, building maintenance, treasurer, etc., according to the giftings used for the needs of the church. A deacon's position is also an important one to serve the church and work together for a smooth running while the elders or pastors and bishops folk devote themselves to prayer and ministry of the word. Now, in our church, we use the term deacon. Technically, that term should probably be elders because they're involved with the spiritual aspect of the church as well. When we pray about doing things, we pray as a group. We pray about God's direction. We pray about God's leading. So even though we call them deacons, they're technically elders according to what God's word says. Our old church, we had, we had a deacon board and we had what we called a trustee board. I was on both of those. The trustee board, we, we were the ones that were responsible for the maintenance of the church. If something was broke, we, got, we contracted to fix it. Something was needed to repair. We did all that stuff. The, the elders or the deacons in the church, they were the ones, just like our deacons, they were responsible for the spiritual aspect of the church. They prayed for the pastor. They encouraged the pastor. So even though we use the term deacon, we're technically, I think, they're elders. And maybe at some point we'll change our constitution to say that, but that's what those two positions are. Since those in leadership can affect the church members and the direction of the church, Paul says they need to take that responsibility seriously. Why? Because people who have those positions, the Bible says, will be judged harsher than everybody else. If, you have a, if you're in a position to influence other people, and by what you teach them or how you act, God says, all right, I'm going to judge you a little bit harder. 
James 3.1 says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Luke 17.1 says, Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they, through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause any of these little ones to sin. Now we think, and it, we usually apply this to children, but the text and commentators think that it's not children, but people who are babies in the faith. People who are young believers who just, got, who just came to know Christ, but they don't know a lot yet. And so if they have a teacher that's teaching them wrong, the Bible says it's better for you to get drowned, buddy, than to be teaching these young Christians the wrong thing. 1 Corinthians 3.1 says, Brothers, I cannot address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. And people who are new believers are easily, easily led astray by those who are, who are in positions of authority. And if it sounds authoritative and the guy sounds good, they're going to follow him because they're going to assume that what he's teaching is true. That's why I'm encouraging you. You've got to read this. You've got to know this. Don't take everything I say as gospel. Make sure it lines up with this. Church, good churches have gone astray because people in leadership have taken them astray. It's a serious thing to lead God's people. When you teach and you, you encourage and you get someone to follow Christ, that's a serious thing. And man, I don't want to be on the receiving end of bad judgment. <laughs> But there are people that lead churches. You look at denominations that have strayed. Why have they strayed? Because leaders at some point have decided to go off on their own little tangent and take people away from God's word. I read a stat once in Barna that, I forget what the percentage was, but there was a percentage of pastors who don't believe that God's word is true. Then why do you do what you do? If you don't, if you don't believe it, why you? But then they'll, they don't teach from it either. They'll teach from whatever book is out. And, and then what happens if people follow them? Now, whenever people come to our church from other churches, I feel compassion on the church that they left. If it was a good church. They preached the Bible and they decided to come here I feel for the pastor because I know how that feels. Person leaves to go someplace else. I know how that feels. But if they leave a bad church, I'd feel no guilt at all because they're not being taught and they need to come to a place that they are being taught. So we want to be sure that we lead them right. The next one is kindness or mercy or compassion. They're all the same word. Verse 6. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Other translations refer to that as, as mercy. This is one with special ability to give acts of mercy, understanding, and kindness to people in distress. 1 Corinthians 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Now, it's kind of a tongue twister when you read that. But it means that if you've been through something and you have special compassion because you understand it, 
you're the one who's able to minister to somebody else. If you've been through tragedy, you're able to minister to someone who's going through the same thing. More than someone who hasn't. Because you have that understanding, you have that compassion. Colossians 4.11, Jesus, who is called justice, also sends greetings. There are, there are only the, these are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, for they have provided a comfort to me. Acts 9.36, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is also translated Dorcas, who is, also, who is always doing good and helping the poor. Compassion and mercy. Again, not everybody has these gifts. Everybody has a different gift. And you may have that gift of compassion. And if you have that gift, God wants you to exercise it. And if you've been through situations, God can use you to minister to someone who is just going through them right now. That's what we read, the First Corinthians 1 Corinthians th- 3.1, or 1.3. Another reason why it's good to be together, because if you walk in and you have something on your heart that's really struggling with, the best person to talk to you is someone who's been there. <laughs> hey, look, I was there five years ago. I know exactly what you're going through. Let me tell you how God helped me in that situation. Because if you're going through something, you may not be attuned to what God wants to do. So you need to hear from somebody else. The the pain may be too great to let the Holy Spirit minister to you. So you need someone physically to come in and talk to you about that. And you need someone to show you compassion. Paul already said that not everyone has every gift, but everyone has at least one of them. And he expects us to be able to use them for the kingdom of God. And since God hands them out, according to his will, No gift is any better than others. Going back to what I said at the beginning, and Paul repeats himself three times in the same chapter, replace the word body with the word church. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. The church is a unit made up of many parts. Though all of its parts are many, they form the one church. Verse 14. Now the church is not made up of one part, but many. And then verse 27, now you are the body of Christ or the church and each one of you, look at that, each one of you has a part in it. Everyone here today, you've trusted Christ at any point in your life. God's empowered you with at least one gift that he wants to use through you. And I think those gifts they may transition, they may change over time. You, you're a young person, you're energetic, you can work with kids. Time goes on and you become older and you can't keep up with those kids, although Judy keeps up with them. How do you do that, man? You change, your giftings change. I used to visit a nursing home and there was a lady in the nursing home that was blind. And, but she was alert. I mean, she was, her mental faculties were fine. And she said her ministry now is praying for her church. That's her gift. That's her humility. So everyone's got a gift. We sing a song that says, if I'm not dead, then you still have work for me to do. Right? So everyone here, regardless of your status in life, where you are, God has a job for you, for the growth of this body. Right now, there's probably a, 
half a dozen or so people downstairs ministering to children. If they weren't down there, we would have all those kids in here. And after about 20 minutes, we would not like that very much. Although, hey, I'm all for bringing them in for worship. I'm all for having them in church. But it was also a time that parents need to receive. And you can't do that if your kids are screaming and crying and carrying on and running around. You can't. So because they have the gift of working with children, we get blessed. And we have ushers who are able to do what they do. And they have greeters that are able to do what they do. And we have Wednesday night workers who are able to work with the kids on Wednesday night. And if you're down there on Wednesday night, they seem to be a little bit more rambunctious on Wednesday night than they do on Sunday morning. Of course, it doesn't help that they sing the monkey song. And they are just like jumping beans down there at 8 o'clock at night. But the point is, everyone is able to bless somebody else in some way. Now, actually, it, it just worked out that God had these, this series in mind since we're coming up to VBS. Can you see where I'm going with this? VBS is coming up, and there are positions for everybody in VBS. You may not be gifted as a teacher. Maybe you're not going to be one swinging from the, all the stuff we've got going on outside there. But you can do something. If you haven't signed up yet, I encourage you to do that. There's also a, a insert in your bulletin today about all the ministries we either have or want to have at Dover. If we have, we pass out 360 of those VBS invites, plus we pass out 100 of the pizza tickets, and we're going to pass out 64 more of them to the police station. If all of those people come to this church on one Sunday, are we ready for them? Are we going to be scrambling for them? Now, there was a, a great film years ago. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but the catch line is, if you build it, they will come. Field of dreams. If you build it, they'll come. I'm not one to think that if we build something, people will automatically come to it. But I believe that we need to be prepared and have it in place so that when they do come, we're not trying to scramble to build it. So that's why that insert's in there. And that's why we have VBS, and that's why we have all the things we have going on. Because in this church, as I said at the beginning, whatever God wants to accomplish in this church, he has supplied the people to do it. But that requires us to say, okay, God, I'm going to do it. We learned last week the Bible says that the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. In other words, you can feel that call and you can still say no. But what's going to happen is you're going to miss out on the blessing that you get from answering the call. When I first taught, the first class I taught was teens, young, young teenagers, young youth group kids. And I loved those kids. They were great. And now they're all, half of them are in ministry somewhere and they're all parents and but I got great joy out of helping those kids. I didn't think I'd get that, but I did. And you're not going to think you're going to get great joy out of something that God's called you to do, but trust me, when you start doing it, 
you're going to enjoy doing it. And it's going to be tough, but you're going to get joy out of what you do. And I think all of us here, we've all been empowered by something that God's given us, and I think we all have a pretty good idea of what that might be. Now our job is just to say yes to what God's called you to do. Would you stand this morning? Close your eyes for a moment. We're going to pray. Maybe you're here this morning. This is your very first time in church, or at least in this church. Or maybe you've been a part of this church for years. But you've never really made a decision to trust Christ for your salvation. You know that you're a sinner. You know that your life isn't perfect. And the truth is, none of our lives are perfect. And the Bible says we're all sinners. And we're all destined for not heaven. And none of us can work good enough. We can't be good enough to get there. I mean, how many good things do you need to do? 51%, 52%. We can't get there by ourselves. But the Bible says that Jesus came and he took the punishment that we all should receive. By his stripes we are healed. Healed of sin, healed of sickness. And when Jesus says it's finished, that means the debt's been paid. Our job is not just to believe it in our head, but to believe it and accept it in our heart. Bible says if you believe in your heart that Jesus that Jesus died, God raised him from the dead, you confess it with your mouth, then you're saved. Then you've you've given your life to Christ. When we use that expression, you've given your life to Christ, you believe in what he sacrificed so that you can have now eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, Jesus, said that whoever believes upon him, not just factual assent, not just something in your head, whoever believes in their heart, and him shall not perish, but have eternal life. If you're not sure where you're going to spend eternity, if you're not sure where you stand with God right now, the Bible says these things are written that you may know. You may know with assurance where you stand. So if you're not sure, that means you probably aren't, you're probably not in. And the Bible says that the Father draws you. In other words, if you're thinking about God, it's because God is making you think about Him. Putting that thought in your heart and your mind because He wants you to choose. He's laid everything out for you to choose. But He's going to leave that choice up to you. The Bible says that He stands at the door of your heart and He knocks. He's knocking. He wants you to choose. If you're here today and you want to make that choice, you want to trust Christ, not yourself, not how good you are, not your past, not how good you're going to be, but you trust Christ for your salvation. You trust Christ for your eternal future. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand because that's the day. The Bible says today is the day of salvation.
And Father, for the rest of us, I pray that you would continue to fill us with your Holy Spirit. As your word says, we are to continue to be filled. Not as a one-time thing, but every day we ask God to fill us with the Spirit, which enables us to live this life. And as we're filled with the Spirit, I pray that, God, you would really impress upon people the gifts that you have given them. Not only for themselves, that would ultimately bring them joy as they complete what you've called them to do. But you've given them gifts to bless other people who may need them at any given time. That this church needs at any given time. I pray that you would help them to realize what that gift is and then realize that they have to actively be involved in using the gift. Allow us to leave here this morning encouraged by what you're doing, excited for what you're planning in the future for us, and that, God, we are in preparation mode for what you are going to do. Lord, I commit each person to you. I pray your blessings upon all the dads and fathers here today. I pray that you'll just give them a great day. Allow them to experience your love and allow them to cherish the fact that you've actually called them to be dads. Let them realize that it's the second most important thing they ever have to do. So Lord, I commit them to you. Everyone here, I commit to you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. Have a great Father's Day. Remember, Jesus is your, your God's your Father.